back into Esther 3. Um, tonight we're going to work through all of Esther 2, 1 through 18, which is not the entire chapter, but it's the lion's share of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to ask questions and we're going to have some discussion, but, but more than likely we're going to quickly go through the whole text and then we're going to have a, a longer discussion at the end. Um, and I expect that there's going to be a lot of discussion uh, because tonight I'm going to, I'm going to probably, um, what's a good way to put it? Uh, I'm going to probably challenge some long-held views about, um, about how Esther is taught and interpreted. So if you, I'm glad, I hope you didn't bring tomatoes or anything, but I'll take them if you throw them at me anyway. But we're going to have opportunity to discuss it. So what, I'll give you the big headline right now and then we'll work through it. Esther, in this book, Esther and Mordecai are going to be used of God, for sure. They're going to show courage and stand for God's people. That's the whole point of the book, is God working all these things uh, through the intricate details of her life and the Persian Empire to save his people from destruction, because Haman decrees, the, or, or has the king decree, the destruction of the Jewish people. And, uh, and of course, God has worked all of these things, moving Esther to the uh, to the throne and the opportunity to go to the king and all of the things have worked together through God's providence and God's plan to, um, to save them. That's the purpose of all this. So they will, in the book of Esther, show courage. They will uh, stand uh, against, uh, you know, Esther will go into the king risking her own life. All of those things will happen. So in a, in a way, she's kind of the heroine of the story. But at this point in the story, in chapter 2, they are not presented as moral examples of faithfulness. They are not models that we should follow. In fact, the author presents them in a compromising kind of way. So we're going to look at that, and that's the headline, and y'all can feel free to just tell me how terrible that is as we get through it, but I think, uh, I think I'm going to make a pretty good case, and uh, we'll see it. So at this point in the story, um, last week, Esther chapter 1, Basically, just set the scene. You remember? You remember? Everybody remember? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, that was really all that was going on was to show us the scene in which this is about to take place. Um, wealth, power, empire that can do whatever it wants, king who can decree whatever he wants, and subjects or, or service to his every whim, doesn't matter what he says, and those decrees are uncontestable. They can't be appealed. They can't be this. It's just ultimate, absolute power. Uh, you remember where we are in the timeline. So Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon, and then Babylon was conquered by Persia, and then King Cyrus, who led the, the conquering of Babylon, decreed that any Israelite who wanted to go home could go home, uh, and, and many did, but a lot did not. They stayed in Persia. And so you have Cyrus, and then you have Cyrus's son, Darius, and that's where Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all that took place. And then you have Cyrus, uh, Darius's son, Ahasuerus, also known in history as Xerxes, uh, and that's where Esther and this story takes place. So many Jews are still living, quote-unquote, in exile uh, in Persia, though there was a decree that any of them that wanted to go home could go home. So, like I said, the king at this time was Xerxes, Ahasuerus. We saw that in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, he threw a six-month party. And 
It was for his military leaders, for his provincial leaders. And do you remember, we talked about the history of what the party was, might be for, but do you remember what the text told us, the reason uh, that this party was for? What was he doing? He was showing off. It said so that they could all see the wealth and said he was showing off the, the gold and the, and the silver and the marble and, and all of those things. Chapter 1 described this, this opulent, decadent party in this huge, beautiful palace with, with gold chairs and all kind of different drinking cups and marble floors. Uh, and it described just the riches of this kingdom. Um, and they were on display. They were, they were extravagantly wealthy. And we also saw in chapter 1 the, the center of power in Persia. You remember it? The king had absolute power. He could decree anything he wanted, and it was the law of the land. Everyone had to abide. It was unquestionable, and nothing could be done about it. Even so much so that they, had to pass, they passed a law, a decree, that said... Anybody at this party, this party that we're having, you can do whatever you want as far as drinking. They had to pass a law so that the people would know that they could do whatever they want. It was regulated and everything was at the whim of the king. But despite having all of this wealth, all of this glory, all of this power, we also saw how ridiculously inept that the author of Esther shows the king and the empire to be, right? He makes this... Um, uh, he just ridiculous things happen. So one of the, one of the things that happened was, uh, of course, the decree about they could keep on drinking. But then also he decreed that his wife would come to uh, basically show her off in front of all of these, you know, these, these military people and all the assumably drunken uh, party that's going on. And this great king, this wealthy power, no one can contest his rule, found out really quickly that it's easy for his wife to just say, nope, I'm not coming. And it made him look foolish. Um, and so we see in the opening chapter, we see this picture, this scene set of power and wealth and absolute uh, autonomy of this king can do whatever he wants, say whatever he wants, decree whatever law he wants, and everyone must obey. But at the same time, you see he is inept. He is uh, a drunken fool. Uh, and when his wife said no, he turned to Queen Vashti said, no, I'm not coming. He turned to his advisors who made this huge deal, making it a national emergency Oh, you need to put out a decree saying that Queen Vashti is going to lose her crown and she's going to go into exile, never to come in your presence again. And all the, all the households in Persia, all the women will uh, respect their husbands. And their thinking was in chapter 1 that the wife of the king saying no to the king was a national emergency that would, would bring down the Persian empire. So on the one hand, you have a picture of this opulent wealth, power, rule authority. And on the other hand, you have this, I, 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 don't know what a, I don't know a better adjective than just, it's just ridiculous. You know, he's not as powerful as he thinks he is. He is a drunken fool whose advisors are telling him what to do and they're passing ridiculous laws. But all of that together makes this a very dangerous place for God's people. We've talked about that when, when, when people, when, um, Immoral or incompetent people have absolute power. It's a very dangerous time uh, and anything can happen. This is what 
the Jews lived in who were still in Persia. Um, I went through, went through the, the, the decree, chapter 1, went through the ridiculous event. And so my last note on the review was that even though these men were temperamental, inconsistent, incompetent, the empire still had absolute power and did whatever the king wanted. So the scene is set. This powerful empire, immoral, incompetent, do whatever they want, not a safe place for the Jews who were there living in exile because everything was based on the whim of the king. And you get this sense in chapter 1 that everything just seems hopeless. Like it's, it's hopeless for you to stand against the decree of such a powerful king regardless of how immoral, how inept, how ridiculous he is. But because we know the end of the story... We see God's hand, we saw God's hand in chapter 1 directing these events. You know, there's a reason why Queen Vashti was deposed and sent away, you know, in God's purposes, right? He was going to bring Esther to the throne. She was going to be the instrument used to save the people from exile. So God was moving even in these, these insane events, and he was moving in such a way to save his people from a danger that they didn't even know was coming yet. God was already working. So now in chapter 2, we find out how two Jewish people, Mordecai and Esther, were swept up into the wake of the empire's power. What I want to do is the same thing I did last week. I just want to read all 18 verses to get it all in your mind. And then we're going to go quickly through them. And I'm going to show you a few points of application. Y'all, everybody okay? Good with that? All right. Well, that's what we're going to do. All right, here we go. After these things, means the party, the decree, the Queen Vashti being deposed. After these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, the queen, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And, no surprise, this pleased the king. And he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa. Literally, it says a man of Judah in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict, remember the edict of bring all the, the young virgins and we'll have a contest. When that edict was proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him, uh, the young woman, excuse me, Esther, pleased him and won his favor, the, the eunuch, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each, this is explaining the process, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, to King Hazuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, 12 months beauty treatment, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman wa- went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return, this is important, to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch. He was in charge of, not the women, but the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave great feasts for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, that's chapter 2, or most of chapter 2. We stopped at 18. Next, next time, in the second part of chapter 2, we'll see Mordecai overhearing the plot. So in chapter 2, later in this passage, as we begin back at the beginning, verse 1, after these things, later in the passage, we find out that after these things is actually seven or or several years later. So we were told in chapter 1 that the party Ahasuerus threw, Xerxes threw, was in the third year of his reign. And in verse 16, he tells us Esther was actually taken into the king toward the end of his seventh year. So chapter 2 probably begins much later. It's probably after Xerxes came back after being defeated by the Greeks at uh, Thermopylae and Salamis. And we talked about that last week. Uh, It says, after these things, which I believe is much later, he remembered Vashti. Now, I don't think he just forgot the whole episode. It says after his anger subsided, he remembered her. It seems to imply that he may have regretted it, you know, or or maybe he missed her, or or maybe he just missed having a queen. You know, we're not told exactly what his mindset was, but he remembered her, and and remember the decree that he had passed, and that decree, as we saw last week, can't be changed even by the king himself, and when the king is not happy, nobody's happy. The whole empire turns on his mood. So the, the reason why I think these advisors come up with this plan to go ahead and start this, what we might call a contest, that's a bad way to look at it, but 
to go ahead and, and start bringing in the, the young women was because the king's not happy. He's remembering Vashti, probably just, you know, uh, regretting what had happened or just lonely or whatever, whatever's going through his mind. But to keep him happy, it says the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the province of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa and the citadel and the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Cosmetics given to them, and the young young woman who pleases the king. That's the whole point of this. That's all we want to do. We want to make king happy. We'll be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, you know. So the king's thinking about his deposed queen, however he's thinking about her. Advisors say, okay, let's go on and get the plan in action. We've already talked about it before. Let's gather a bunch of beautiful virgins to have queen tryouts, you know, and and the last line says, it pleased the king. Well, I bet it did. Um, now, even by Persian standards, this was not the way that a queen was normally chosen. Uh, this was way out of the norm. Uh, Herodotus, a, a historian uh, of the time, wrote that Xerxes' father, Darius, took wives from the noble families of Persia. So, so just gathering up a bunch of women and saying, okay, we're going to have tryouts, you know, that, was, that was way out of the norm, even for, for, for Persia, um, uh, to see which one would please him. But remember, the king's all-powerful. He can literally do whatever he wants to do. He can decree whatever he wants to decree, and everything turns upon his whim. So... That's exactly what happened. Women came or were taken from all over the empire. They were gathered to the king's harem and they were put under the charge of this man, this eunuch named Haggai. And so because Ahasuerus and the empire had absolute power over their subjects and their empire, neither these women nor their parents had any say in the matter whatsoever. It didn't matter what they thought. Um, The king made the rules and there was no contesting it. Now, I want you to hear this. This is not part of of actual story, but you need to make sure that there's a lot of uh, teaching about Esther and feminism and all all the things. This isn't just a case of women being abused and devalued in ancient... I mean, it is that, but it's not just this. Uh, Herodotus, that same historian, also records that every year in the Persian Empire, young men were gathered uh, to serve as eunuchs forced to be eunuchs. I'm not going no further than that uh, in the Persian court. So it wasn't just about, oh, we're going to devalue. They devalued everybody. And they were all subject to whatever the court wanted, whatever the king wanted. uh, And they were basically taken from their home. Everybody, male, female. They were at the disposal of the king and the disposal of the empire. And there was nothing that you could do about it. And it's with this backdrop of an all-powerful empire who we've already seen is filled with drunken fools and inept, ridiculous rulers um, that were introduced to our main characters in the story, Mordecai and Esther. So first we have Mordecai, verse 5. There was a Jew, it really says a man of Judah, in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Mordecai is identified as a man of Judah. Um, he's living in Susa, living right there. Uh, his ancestry is given. And it wasn't Mordecai that was taken 
uh, where it says, among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. If, if Mordecai is intended to be the one who was taken with Jeconiah by Nebuchadnezzar, then he would be like 120 years old. The idea is that it was his grandfather Kish, or it was just Judah in general, that was taken away uh, to uh, uh, captivity in, in Babylon. I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time getting my thoughts together tonight. Y'all with me? Anything confusing yet? Okay, hold on, it will be. So by giving his ancestry, saying he's a Benjamite, and also saying that his family was the one, one of the ones who were taken with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar first carried the first wave of uh, captives away from, uh, uh, away from Jerusalem, we may be, we, we might, the author might be giving us kind of a hint that Mordecai is, his family was among the nobility of Jerusalem. We don't know that for sure, but it, it's, it's probably a good guess because when Nebuchadnezzar did take King Jeconiah uh, or Jehoiachin, have you, uh, it's Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim, one of those two is the same one as Jeconiah, but when King Nebuchadnezzar took him away into exile, he also took all of the leading men, all of the nobles, all of the dignitaries, all of the, the skilled workers, all of the, the leading people of Jerusalem were taken away with him. So my first question, why is Mordecai still in Persia? I don't know the answer, and you don't either, but we can discuss it. The, remember, Cyrus, the grandfather of Xerxes, the grandfather of Ahasuerus, had told, made a decree, any, any Jewish people who want to go home to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, rebuild your city, you're free to go. And many went with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, the people that went with Ezra and Nehemiah have not gone yet. This is happening in between those two returns. Um, but why would a Jewish man, a man of Judah, family lineage from the tribe of Benjamin, carry probably either nobility or high um, aristocratic family in Jerusalem, why is he still in Persia? Why didn't he go back? Why didn't he want to go home when he's free to do so? I'm just asking for a guess because we don't know. Was he born there? Probably. He was probably born in captivity. He, he could be, sure enough. So Nebuchadnezzar took, man, I'm going to mess my dates up tonight for sure. I want to say 586, 587, that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Um, we are, man, I can't remember when Cyrus's decree was. But we are, we are 100 years. You know, we're 100 years later. Uh, because captivity for 70, 80 years, freed. We're, we're a good hundred years later. So there's a good chance that he was born in Persia. Uh, if not, he's sure enough old, which I don't think that's the case. Um, but he probably is born there. Let's just say that for right now. And if I'm, oh, by the way, let's stop all this right now. I got to make an announcement. If you needed proof that you need to check your Bible. Based on what I say, you could have no better example than Sunday morning. Because I stood up here like an absolute fool and, thank you. <laughs> and told you to write in your Bible the wrong reference to the text. I was, instead of Numbers 15, I said Numbers, I even had it on the screen, Numbers 15. It was Numbers 14. You, 
You need to test everything everybody says. You've got a Bible just like I do. I make mistakes. Make sure you test what I say. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. Thanks, Patricia. I hold, I hold myself mainly accountable, but I also hold Dave accountable. Because Dave knew after the first service and didn't tell me before the second service. And now it's on the internet forever. But it's okay. It's okay. We all make mistakes. Huh? Yeah, now Patricia, you should have, you should have told me. Uh, I, when I go back and listen to some of my sermons, you know, I'll say, I'll say Egypt when I mean Israel. I'll say Ezekiel when I mean Isaiah. You need, to be, you need to be checking in your own Bible. Don't depend on the screen. Don't depend on what I say. Check in your own Bible because I'm not infallible. Okay, back to where we were. Why has Mordecai not left? Used to live in there. Money, for sure. He's probably had a good life in Persia. People hate to move. I guess. Always known. Yep. Do you Maybe. She said, do you think he was Jewish in his identity, but not in his own faith, not practicing? That's a, we don't know that for sure, but that's a possibility because he does tell, es, uh, he does tell Esther to hide her faith. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little um, I think it's safe to say because a lot of, you know, when Jeremiah prophesied to those that were going in captivity, he told them, you build houses, you make yourself at home because you're going to be there a long time. And many did. And many had a good life. You know, many had a good life in Babylon and in Persia. And there is some evidence. I, I didn't understand it fully when I read it. There is some source documentation of... Uh, uh, a, a Persian version of the name Mordecai that is listed in uh, the official court of, of, uh, of Xerxes. But I didn't bring that as evidence that he was because it just didn't seem, the, the names didn't match close enough to me. And I don't know enough about Persian and Hebrew dialect to make that connection. But he could have just had a good life in Persia and not wanted to leave. You know, it's, it's very possible. Seems like they had, he had a lot of freedom. I mean, he's strolling around in front of the gate of the harem, you know, so he was able to go, he was able to go into, into the palace in Susa. So it's, it's, it's not, a, not, a bad, um, not a bad thought to have. And so we have Mordecai. Then we're introduced to Esther. It says he was bringing up Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. Persian name is Esther. Esther is, it's, it's actually from the name Ishtar, which is the Babylonian goddess of love and war. Uh, it's not unusual for the Hebrews to have other names. You know, Daniel had another name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's not an unusual thing. Uh, he is the, she is the daughter of Mordecai's uncle, which makes her his cousin. But her mother and father, she had no mother and father. Later, they, in this text, they told us, we're told that they died. She was being brought up by him as her, his daughter. And the only thing we're told about her at this stage is that she was, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So we are talking about uh, just how beautiful she is. By the way, Hadassah means myrtle, like a myrtle tree. Um, and so uh, I think that the way this plays out in chapter 2... I think the author uses both of Esther's names, Hadassah and Esther, to show that she is a woman that is living between two worlds in 
the Persian Empire. And that is the conflict of this chapter. Uh, the conflict which is going to come to the forefront of this story. So as we progress through the story, Esther's going to be queen, and she's going to be the Persian queen, and all of that. And the time is going to come where she's going to have to make a decision. Are you just going to be the Persian queen, or are you going uh, to be the daughter of Israel who's going to stand up for your people? You know? And so that decision is what really comes to the forefront, is who, who are you going to be? Uh, and in fact, Mordecai even comes to her later in the book, and he says, listen... If you refuse to do this, God's going to raise up deliverance for the Jews some other way. But who knows that you haven't been made queen for such a time as this. You know, it's a famous verse you probably heard. So Mordecai is actually Esther's cousin, but he's raising her as his daughter because her parents are dead. Now this, like I said, all we're told at this point, she's beautiful. So now the scene is set. The characters have been introduced, Mordecai and Esther and the king, the, the drunken imbecile as he's presented in chapter 1. And now we see how this all plays out. In verse 8, it says, When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Beautiful Esther is taken into the king's harem to participate in this contest to find the next queen. Now, Esther and Mordecai, our, our two main characters, are swept up into this insanity, and she is in the harem now. She is at the mercy of the king and the empire. And in verse 9, it says, young, the, the young woman pleased, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food. That's very important, her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women for, from the king's palace and advanced her and young women. Uh, man, I got to slow down. Her and her, it's been a long day today. And her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So immediately we see Esther, of course, finds favor with this eunuch who's charged over the women. And she's given special treatment. She receives special Beauty treatments really is what it is. Cosmetics is how it's translated here. She receives her portion of food. And she receives basically her own servants uh, from the palace. So, so make a note of that for now. All this was because she found favor with Haggai, Haggai, the eunuch. And we can only chalk that up to, we're not told how, we're not told why. Chalk it up to God is moving all things to, you know, to, to move Esther to this place. It's, it's happening just like, uh, just like God providence, God's providence is ordaining. But what we also find is just like everywhere else in the empire, everything depends on pleasing the one who's in charge. That's why she gets all this treatment is because she finds favor with this eunuch. And so we're also told here for the first time in verse 10 that Esther hides her Jewish identity. And Mordecai, the man of Judah, raising her as his daughter, is the one who told her to do it. Okay? Lodge that in your brain. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in a minute. We're going to discuss all these things. Any questions so far? I don't want to go too fast where we don't understand, get all the way to the end when we get ready to discuss this and there's some misunderstanding. Okay, verse 11. Every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and was, what was happening to her. Now, obviously, obviously cared about her. I mean, raising her as a daughter, probably with, I mean, probably with good reason. You know, there's no protection for her in the king's harem. 
Uh, she's at the whim of the empire now. She's at the whim of the king. And, and the fact that Mordecai is able to walk through the palace in front of the court of the king's harem, it, it might indicate Mordecai was some sort of official, some sort of, uh, you know, not, not super high advisor to the king or anything like that, but just some sort of court official. It's possible. We don't know that for sure. And now the process of how the women, this contest played out is explained to us. And a lot of times we read through the book of Esther and we miss really what's happening. When, you, when we present this as a contest to see who's the most beautiful, that's, that's not what's happening right here. It's a, it's a whole lot more gross than that. So this is the process. When the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, what does go into King Ahasuerus mean? Don't be, please don't be specific. You know, let's say... Do we all know what that means? Yes. Okay, good enough. After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, which beauty treatments, six months of uh, myrrh and six months of spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way for her night, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now, that phrase is really vague, and it doesn't tell us anything. There have been a lot of suggestions down through the centuries. It could refer to jewelry. Uh, it could refer to clothing, something worn. It could refer to, you know, potions or aphrodisiacs or whatever. We, we just don't know. But whatever she wanted to take into her night with the king, she was allowed to do that. And after, uh, after spending one night in the king's bed, we're told in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return not to the court, not to the, the, the first harem, but to the second harem in the custody of a different man, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So when you call this a beauty contest... You're really missing the point. The woman for at least a year, 12 months of beauty treatments, but if there was other women in front of you, it would have been years and years and years. After all that, she goes in, takes whatever she wants, goes in to one night with the king, uh, you know, and after that one night, she would come out, and if she didn't win the contest, she didn't go home. She went to the harem, and she stayed there the rest of her life. Uh, she, she, and she would never leave it. She would never come out. She would never see the king again unless he called for her by name. So this really wasn't a contest. It was an abduction. So go in with the king. Okay, you've had your night. Now go be in the harem, and that's where you stay the rest of your life. Her life would be now lived at the king's pleasure. Now, make sure you understand, you know... Um, it would be a life of luxury, for sure, but it would also be a life of seclusion. You know, she would never be allowed to leave the harem and go marry somebody else or go return to her family or, or, or any of that stuff, you know, and, and she could never see the king again unless he asked for her by name. So this really wasn't a beauty contest to find the next queen. You know, whether you won or whether you lost, you were in the service of the king for the rest of your life. Now, for many poor uh, women, this was probably an opportunity, you know, 
I mean, it sounds horrible to say, but it was an opportunity to live a comfortable life of leisure in the palace. You know, if the king didn't call for you specifically, you just, you just lived in luxury. And it's like winning the lottery. But of course, for others, hold on, for others, it's prison. You know, it's a, it's a life sentence. You know, those, uh, I'm sure many of them wanted to be with their family, didn't want to leave their family, wanted to go and marry and have a family, and, and you, you had no life. So although you lived in luxury and you were pampered, every, t- every need was tended to, you were imprisoned, abducted and imprisoned for the rest of your life. Uh, you could never leave, you could never have any other kind of life than just being in the, queen's, in the king's harem. So it wasn't, it wasn't what we might call a beauty contest. Um, this is how the process worked. Now Esther's turn comes. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, he, she at, now listen, this, the details are very important. We're going to talk about them all. She asked... For nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth in the seventh year of his reign. Now, why does Esther... You know, she's got whatever it is, jewels, clothing. I don't know what, nobody knows what it was, but pick whatever you want. You can go in for your night with the king. Why does Esther rely on the eunuch whom, with whom she's found favor to advise her about what to take into the king? She knows what, he, knows that he, he knows what the king wants. He knows what the king wants. He's, he's in charge of the women. So he's probably been doing it a long time. Anybody, everybody agree with that? So what is, mo- what is Esther's motivation for asking Haggai what to take into the room with the king? Huh? Wants to be queen? Wants to please the king? Wants an advantage. Wants an advantage? Okay. Anybody disagree with that? Yeah, okay. We're on the right track. Yeah, that's exa- well, that's exactly right. Miss Barbara said she had found favor with Haggai, the, the eunuch, so she knew that she could trust his advice about what would please the king. So I think that's exactly correct. She is seeking to please the king, presumably because she wants to be the queen. Um, she uses her resource, which is Haggai's favor, to do so. Now... Esther is a book that we should not romanticize. Um, Like all the other harem girls, she spent the night in the king's bed. And because she did, the king, of course, falls in love with Esther. Verse 17, the last two verses, says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he sat the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave great feasts for all his official servants. It was Esther's feast. 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces, gave gifts, and with royal generosity. Do you see the theme? When the king's not happy, nobody's happy. But when the king's happy, everybody's happy. So now we come, I've got 15 minutes for discussion. Now we come to a moral dilemma. Should Esther, at this point in the story, or Mordecai for that example, matter, be seen as a godly example for God's people to emulate? No? No, it didn't say she chose to go. It says she was taken. And then in these verses, Mm -hmm. it says that it didn't necessarily say she's asked for the advice. She just took the advice that was given to her on what to take into the king's room. What did it say? She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. So he could have gave that advice without her asking for that. No, not if it says she asked for nothing except for what he advised. So here's the thing. I'm going to lay out my case, and then y'all tell me if I'm absolutely wrong. Mordecai and, Mordecai and Esther's actions here are the exact opposite of all the other biblical heroes that we've seen through this time who would rather risk death than compromise their obedience to God. Mordecai told Esther to hide her Jewishness. Now, when we think of that, now we know, we know that's wrong for us as believers to hide your faith. And you know, you know what I mean. I don't mean, you know, you don't flaunt it if you're in a, a country that you'll lose your head, but you don't deny it either. But what does it look like for us to hide our faith? We just don't tell anybody. What would it look like for a practicing Orthodox Jew to hide her faith? Abraham and Sarah. Huh? Did what? Yes, but we're talking about long after now. We've received the law of Moses. The Jews are living by the law of Moses. In order for her to successfully hide her Jewish faith in the king's harem, she would have to eat whatever's put in front of her. She would have to not observe the Sabbath. She would, she would have, that was the only way to hide your Jewishness because there was a lot of outward aspects of the Jewish faith. Mordecai told Esther to hide her Jewishness The only way to do that. And it said that Haggai brought food, the food provided to her. And unlike Daniel, it doesn't say anything about her requesting different food or wanting different food. She she ate it. You know, Um, that her to not to not reveal her Jewishness, to hide it by especially by not keeping the Sabbath, not, you know, not abstaining from not eating kosher food as Daniel would would did during Darius's reign. Uh, That's the opposite of what Daniel did in the court of Darius. He didn't eat the king's food because he was being faithful to the Lord. He He did. He did. No, he did ask permission. He did. Uh, But she would have not. She would have had to have forsaken the public daily prayers as well. And Daniel did say, "I'm not doing that." When when King Darius said, "You're not going to be praying no more," he said, "No, I'm going to go up to my window. I'm going to pray." Would she have to change her appearance too? Because I mean, that thinking of. 
That I don't know. He asked if she would have had to have changed her appearance. So I'm not sure. The p- her hair? Huh? Her hair? Yeah. She, Jewish ladies were supposed to have it up, covered. Probably not. Um, those things I don't know. And I want, I want us to see that there is, down through history, down through history of the interpretation of this book, there have been people that have said Esther... In fact, the, the, the translators in 200 B.C. who translated the Hebrew Masoretic text to the, to the Greek Septuagint, who translated from Hebrew to Greek, um, they added six chapters to the book of Esther in the Apocrypha. If you, if you go, there's, there's, Esther's much longer in the Apocrypha. And those books are basically Esther's explanation saying, I never ate the food. I never didn't keep the Sabbath. I, I abhorred the bed of the, the Gentile king and all those things. And those books were added because this just doesn't seem the implication of, these, of this silence in this text about her making she had to she had no choice it was either die or do these things but there's no mention of any kind of uh, abhorrence of it and in fact when you take into account the fact that she asked the eunuch what to take in specifically to please the king makes it seem like she was gonna she wanted to find favor with the king rather than thinking this was a gross you know horrible uh, breach of her faith um, but that was the only way she was going to be able to free her people. That right. That's true. No, that's the point of Esther. She said that's the only way she was going to be able to free her people. But she didn't know that's why she was doing it. But God is working in all of this, for sure. God's purpose is. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the point. So Lau brought up many of the other people, the heroes of the faith in Genesis, Exodus, and all of those that also, you know, changed their appearance, you know, lived among the culture. Um, I think the point, what you exactly said, there will, Esther is going to be the hero of this story. Uh, God's the hero, but he's going to use Esther. There's going to come a point where I think that's the point of the story, that she is forced to choose. You're either going to be this Persian queen or you're going to be the Israelite of the people of God who is used by God to save your people. And you're going to risk your life to have to do it. And she makes the right choice. She does it with courage. So that is coming. She is going to be the hero. I think, and this is my opinion, that in this early, in this early chapter, neither she nor Mordecai is presented as a hero of their faith. They're presented as uh, those who are living comfortably in, in Persia and just trying to get along. Um, so let, let, let's put a different spin on it. Let's say, let's say you're reading this chapter, reading through the book of Esther, this chapter to, to your teenage daughter. What lesson would you give her from Esther's conduct in this chapter? Like what moral teaching? 
What lesson would you say that she needs to learn from what Esther does in this? I would say she was being submissive to Mordecai. Being submissive to Mordecai by sleeping with a Gentile. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I, this it. We're we're discussing. I'm not. I'm not lecturing you. Yes. I think another layer to this could be the fact that she's a woman and she's under the direction of her uncle and now Hagar. Mm-hmm. And that that's part of the nerve burn defense is I only did it because I was commanded to do so. Mm. And so. Being directed to do so by first Mordecai. And then now indirectly so then we should not praise the Egyptian, the Hebrew midwives who defied Pharaoh's order then. Were they, were they praiseworthy for what they did in their defiance or were they wrong? But God told them to do it. They were under God's direction specifically in that case. Sure, sure. And why? Because what they were, about, what they were being commanded to do was wrong. Yeah. So, and there's also Esther becoming queen may even be because at this time, so you have Esther's, Esther's stories going on at this time, not 25 years later, less than 25 years later, Ezra goes back to the land with his, you know, Jerusalem to, to rebuild the temple, read the law and all that stuff. And Ezra goes ballistic because all of the Jews in Jerusalem had married Gentiles. Uh, he goes nuts and he says, no, 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 this is, this is against God's law. I wonder how Ezra thought of Queen Esther's marriage. What would he would have said? Yes, uh, Anita first, then Susan. I just think it shows God's grace and mercy. He chooses people to work through. That we would not know Jesus if we Oh, Absolutely. I think that's exactly what the point of the book of Esther is. So if you didn't hear that, Miss Anita said that it could, it, 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 she thinks it is that it shows us that even though we are sinful, sometimes make wrong choices, do wrong things, it doesn't preclude us from being used by God. And I think that's exactly the point. The point is that, that all, through this, all through this book, we're not, told, uh, we're not told whether Vashti's refusal of the king was good or bad. We're not told what Esther's mindset is when all this has happened. I, I got to tell you, I, I, find it hard, I find it hard to not blame Mordecai. So you're raising her as a daughter, and when this edict comes out that she's going into the harem for the rest of your life, you just say, okay, see ya. No, no, I'm heading to the hills, man. I'm running, and, and we're going, you know, so I... But through all of this, what we're going to see, we're in chapter 2, as we move through this, God is, going to, God is using this event, even though the, the choices that are being made are morally questionable, God is using it, he's working through it to save his people, and there's going to come a point when these two who are presented at the beginning as possibly, I'll say possibly, compromised in living between two worlds, the Jewish world and the Persian world, there's going to come a point where their identities merge and they have to pick. They have to choose. It's time to make a choice. Mordecai's choice is when he refuses to bow down to Haman. You know, no, no, no. I will not worship anybody else other than, other than God. 
and that's where he gets in trouble. Esther's choice comes when Mordecai says, listen, if you don't try to go into the king, all of our people are going to die. And she makes the choice to say, okay, I'm going to put my, I'm going to put my faith and my, my heritage as one of God's people before my, my own life and my queenship, and I'm going to go in. And, and so God does use them, and they are, in a sense, the heroes of this story. I'm just saying they didn't start out that way. God is, the point of this is God is working through all of this stuff, even the bad choices, even the sinful things, even, you know, we've already talked about all of the, the reason that he threw a drunken party and, and Queen Vashti got booted off the throne because of this immoral command he gave her and she refused. The ultimate reason is because God is moving Esther into the role so she can save he can save the people through him. So God is working through all of this. So I'm not saying that they're just bad people or that they're just, you know, these are just wicked people. That I'm saying that at this point in the narrative, they are being presented to us not as, you know, Joseph. Joseph rose to power in Egypt, but he did it a whole different way. You know, when, when, when sexual immorality was thrust upon him by his superior, what did Joseph do? He ran, and he got put in jail for two years for it. He got put in jail for two years because he chose not to have sex with Potiphar's wife. Um, now, seemingly, you know, I don't want to sound like, well, she should have protested more. That's an awful thing to say. She, she had to do what, you know, she had to do. But the way that it's presented is not only did she, she just go and do it because I have to do what I have to do to survive, but... She's asking Haggai, what's the best thing for me to wear, to go in? You know, that's, that's strange. And that Mordecai would allow this to happen without taking off, that's strange too. And that she would marry a Gentile, king or not. I mean, that's a breach uh, of God's law. Um, so there's a lot of things in this chapter that just make you go, what? I, I, just don't, I just don't understand. And I think that's the point of the author. Esther and Mordecai are people trying to live in two different worlds, in two different, with two different identities so that they might not face hardship. In fact, you could make a good case that Esther wants to become queen and Mordecai wants her to become queen because maybe that's why he didn't run off. A lot of this is just supposition. Now, like I said, they are going to become the heroes of the story. There comes a moment when they have to choose and they make the right choice. They're going to stand for the Lord um, and they're going to, you know, face death doing it. You know, they build a gallows for Mordecai and Esther faces her own death by going into the king. But here, they're not presented as examples for us to follow. They're, she's not like Daniel who said, can I eat something else? I don't want to eat this. She's not like Daniel who says, I, I, I'm going to keep praying publicly whether it's a decree or not. I'm going to show my faith publicly. They hide their faith. Um, she's not like Joseph who says, I'm not going to commit sexual immorality even if I have to go to prison for it. You know, she's, she's not like Ruth at this point. So I don't think that they're presented as examples for us to follow because if I'm teaching this chapter to my daughters, I don't, I don't see a moral lesson in here that um, other than God is in control and God is working through you even when you mess up. Even when you sin. Questions, comments? Ah, that's what I thought. Ginger. I just had a question. So if Ruth was finished, Ruth was a Gentile, but it was okay 
Right. So she, Ruth, was a, Ruth was a Moabite who was allowed to marry into Israel. She was marrying into Israel. And she was marrying, uh, she was, we talked about at the beginning how it wasn't, wasn't right for Mahalon and Kilion to marry Moabites in the first place. But once they did, then the right of, right of, uh, the right of redeeming the, the, the marriage uh, fell to, to Boaz. And so she was accepted into Israel. And by the end of the book of Ruth, made basically, although her nationality was a Moabite, she is an Israelite. Same as Rahab, who was brought into the nation of Israel. There are plenty of examples of Gentiles being brought into the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, for sure. Yes? At this point in chapter 2, it seems as if uh, Mordecai and Esther are Jewish in ethnicity, but not practicing Jews according to the law of Moses. That could be true. We, I'm not, we're not, not sure that we can say that to a full extent. Scott said it seemed that as at this point that they are, Mordecai and Esther are ethnic Jews that are not practicing. They, they very well could have been practicing up to this point where he says, okay, they're fixing to come get you and take you to the palace, and we need to hide our Jewish identity. They could have been practicing up until this point, but there is no way to hide your Jewishness uh, because it was an outward, it was an outward faith. You know, Sabbath, law-keeping, all those things. Aaron, you had a question? Now, couldn't Mordecai stop this all by letting the guards kill him? Say that one more time. It, he could, but this would, she would still be, she, so Aaron's question was, couldn't, in the next section, Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king by two of the guards, and he goes and tells Esther, who tells the king, you know, puts Mordecai's name in the books, you know, and that's going to be a big thing. Uh, his question was, couldn't Mordecai have fixed all this by just letting those two guards kill the king? Um, I don't think so, because it wouldn't. Esther wouldn't, be, uh, Esther wouldn't be the ruler. Another, another king would, would come forth. In fact, there's some suggestion that Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son, was already born from Vashti by this point. So it would have been Artaxerxes. And she was already queen at this time. Somebody else raised their hand. Yes? I was wondering about how old you would think she was at the time when all this happened. Now that I don't know. There are some that say anywhere from 14, you know, on up to early adulthood. She could have been very young. Yeah, because later in, in the story, she makes some pretty good decisions. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of forethought, so I think she had some maturity. Yeah, maybe so. Absolutely, she could. So the question was whether how old she was, and was she very young, and then matured as she grew uh, to make the better decisions later on. Very possible. Uh, not sure. We're not sure of her age, but you know, I mean. I'm, I'm trying real hard not to say stupid things and gross things, but if you're, if you're going around the empire getting, I mean, it's, it's kind of gross. You're going to get the young, you know what I mean. So there's a good chance she's very young, what we would consider a child, not an adult. Yes? Everybody was proper. 
Right. So basically, just tell, just talking about how the culture was different, and um, Mordecai would have had to take responsibility to find her a husband and uh, provide. And you know, Mordecai didn't leave because he was already established in Persia. All of that, all of that could be could definitely be true. Yes. No, no, no. Stan, you're one person. Don't don't wear a mask and act like you're another person. Yeah. So the lesson that I would make to my daughter in this chapter. Now, remember, last week I told you this book is meant to be read in one city. So it's hard to take this chapter and make a lesson this chapter because it's we're meant to read this in light of what happens next. Um, but my my uh, if I were to make a a lesson for my daughter with this chapter. Um, I would say that, you know, you have to be faithful where God puts you and you have to be faithful to his word. Um, but even, even when we aren't, our God is in control and he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So two things you can't say if we, you have to make a lot of excuses for Esther to say that she was in the right in this and Mordecai. So there have been people that have done it. And if that's the, if that's the interpretation you take, I understand. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, I can't remove you from the kingdom anyway, but I'm not going to fight about it. But um, you, uh, you also can't deny that even if these are bad decisions, you can't deny that God is working in this and God is moving in this and God is bringing this step by step to pass so that Esther does take the throne and Esther does save her people. So you can't deny that God is... Uh, you know, God is not just making the best out of a bad situation. God is moving in all this. Uh, and so those two things are, are, are held together precariously. Any other questions before I happily dismiss? I knew this was going to be a tough one. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that when, um, God, even in times when we do hide our faith, uh, when we should stand for you, um, we thank you that you are still God, that your kingdom is still marching forward, that you are still moving all things according to your purpose. Uh, we thank you, God, that your will, your purpose, your kingdom doesn't depend on us. Uh, it doesn't depend on our faithfulness. Uh, we are, of course, not to be unfaithful because grace may abound. We're not to sin so grace may abound. And our hearts won't allow us to do that if we've been born again and have the Spirit dwelling us. But God, it is, it is such a, an assurance and a rest for us to know that you are God and we are not. 
Uh, God, and you are working all things for your purpose. God, we, we humbly submit to your purpose. And just as Mordecai said in this book, God, we, we must hold on to the fact that uh, he told Esther, even if she decides not to stand up, God would bring deliverance another way. God, we know that you, you deliver your people, and we're thankful for that. So God, help us when we, when we hide our faith, when we fail to do what we're called to do, whatever that may or may not look like. God, we pray that you would help us to uh, be witnesses for you and disciples who make disciples for you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.